Hi. Welcome to Thoughts Into the Void, a podcast in which I would like to talk about topics that have really just grabbed my attention that week, and I'll be doing these bi-weekly. For this episode, we'll be talking about political correctness and the softening of American culture, and some issues that I've had with different developments, let's say, or the implementation of some practices. Think of this as like an unintended side effect list. Political correctness and the softening of American culture, while having broad benefits such as awareness to issues like terms of autistic person versus person with autistic as an identity, the reduction of some harmful terms such as the R word, and the introduction of vast swaths of representation in various forms, the underbelly of the beast has shown itself time and time again with instances that to me honestly just don't make sense. These are best articulated by dividing into some categories and providing some examples that will really kind of give the structure for this overarching concept of a different America. Not necessarily worse, but definitely something else. I'd like to start off with a story about myself. In my younger and more vulnerable years, I came into contact with what I would later come to understand as the concept of political correctness. In fourth grade, the first half of the year had flown by, going over the introduction of many concepts that would follow into many aspects of life. Decimals, volume that wasn't associated with radio, area that wasn't associated with localities, charts, timelines, changes in matter, and whatever various assemblies of school had deemed good enough to culture us. As a young child, life was simple, and at that point in time, I'd spent more time outside reading for pleasure and playing video games than schoolwork. Hanging out with friends meant going outside, and students were actually excited to do things put on by the school and go to events. While this seemed so long ago, in the moment, it felt so long. The three months eventually rounded out to December, shortly after we made our hand turkey paintings and then we'd be bombarded into an assortment of easy days and excess leisure. This excess leisure primarily took the form of movies and food being brought in. That December went on as standard for elementary school. Viewings of the obligatory Polar Express movie, The Grinch, singing carols in music class, and making trees in art. Then as break approached, the school began reminding students and sending information home about report cards and the impending Christmas break start day. Or at least, that's mostly what happened. In reality, everything occurred with one small alteration. Winter break would be commencing Friday, December 18th, and we will resume school January 4th. This was the first year I remember school referring to Christmas break as winter break. And I remember being confused and asking why it was called winter break and not Christmas break. The teacher informed me that there are other holidays during this time, so we are being more inclusive. Even as a fourth grader, I was no stranger to this, as Hanukkah and Kwanzaa occurred relatively around this time, and it was briefly mentioned more as a footnote than a concept, but their existence was known. I had Jewish friends at this time, and was informed of their familial uh, traditions, and learned about the dreidel and menorah, however it generally occurred before we let out. There are an estimated 5.3 million Jewish people in the United States, and between 500,000 to 2 million individuals who celebrate Kwanzaa. While I hadn't known anyone who celebrates Kwanzaa, even at this time, I think it's safe to say that my Jewish friends, and more so their families, might have appreciated the gesture to be included 
in the break for holidays with a more neutral term. But at the same time, none of them would dream of pretending that Hanukkah was the only thing standing between us and being in school until New Year's. No matter what you call it, aside from being at the end of the calendar year, perhaps the day before and after New Year's, Christmas was the real heavy lifter here for getting any kind of substantial break. And yet, as I transitioned into college, the term shifted to winter break, which made sense as the break is significantly longer than our K-12 counterparts, generally speaking. This is a small adjustment, an example of trying to remedy a problem with marginalized groups being left out, and a baseline example of inclusive language. In political correctness and inclusive language, there are many different forms and aspects that it takes, but one of the biggest developments that's happened more recently as far as inclusive language is the concept of identity-first language. One of the biggest challenges that stem from political correctness is the accuracy of terminology and the shying away of terms that could be considered harmful in use out of respect or fear of being canceled. This huge an education towards being inclusive or accurate or politically correct terminology has seen the rise of identity-first language. As an example, the rising popularity of mentally challenged or disabled in lieu of the R word is something that can be seen in living memory for many people as well as the concept of identity first language. For instance, you would say, look at that girl with the stylish handbag, not look at that stylish handbag girl. In a more realistic case, it'd be a syntax switch between person with autism to autistic person. Being autistic shouldn't be a negative descriptor. This is a part of who people who have autism are. The use of identity-first language has brought about equalizing the playing field between different aspects of life as to where athletic people, Asian American, smart person, and any other combination have come to reside in our society. This is a two birds, one stone solution. And yet, even this has issues within itself. How is it possible to have inclusion and accuracy with this setup? On the surface, it seems like a perfect marriage, but in reality, the increased importance of intersectionality and correct terminology is at heads. I think a concept that really illustrates this problem and can make this easier to grasp is POC. Meaning people of color, it has become a new favorite buzzword of sorts in the last few years. However, this presents a problem. When you say POC, who are you referring to? In America, certainly this is a marginalized group, but at what level of melanin do you qualify as a colored person? Likewise, isn't white a color? This argument to me kind of <laughs> 360 no-scopes the entire thing. However, my line of thinking here is an original, because relatively shortly thereafter, People of Color 2.0 was released, it was patched, and they called it BIPOC. Now we're getting somewhere. Black, indigenous, and people of color. Theoretically, this should encompass any and all types of people and is generally earmarked to be synonymous with minorities. Problem solved. Or at least, it would be except rarely would the term be useful in discussing actual problems plaguing any one individual community, and if it plagues more than one, it's more of a people problem. While Christopher Columbus was the first to misidentify indigenous people as Indians, we are finally, hundreds of years later, getting around to fixing the problem we knew existed almost right away. That isn't accurate, and while this is a lesser grievance than all the others that followed and persist to this day, 
July 13th, our very own Washington football team took a step back from the offensive name-calling and fell beneath the swagger of a nation undergoing change. And one more example of this phenomenon, taking a seemingly civil and accurate term, African-American. While this is certainly a step up from Coon, Jigaboo, and anything else Creative Americans have come up with over the years, I have to say, African-Americans and Blacks are not the same thing. Black, while implying a visible amount of melanin as an ethnic term, is honestly more indicative of the identity of someone whose family has been here for a hot minute. Not necessarily tying to slavery, but situated in the US and no longer contain ties to Mother Africa. Meanwhile, African-American is something where the hyphen is meant to traverse two different cultures and implies the immigration in a shorter, more recent timeline. Black culture and African or African-American culture is very different and is characterized by a different upbringing, albeit with similar societal experiences. I cannot imagine walking into Atlanta and asking the first black person that I see their opinion on China's growing influence in Africa or what mega project has been undertaken in the Sino-African trade in their native or homeland country anymore. Not any more than I could ask my neighbor Wendy the same question. Black is unironically just the dark mode experience on being American. They might look different, but ultimately it's the same. Just the same as white versus European American, or any other similar distinction. This culture divide is something that is just outside the realm of terms that are currently being used to describe things and leave more ambiguity in day-to-day -day cases than actually fix things. Nor is the average American trying to take the time out of their day to be absolutely correct all the time, let alone in a growing industry full of a laundry list of failed experience in the realm of linguistics. But experiments exist outside of language in the very fabric of our cultures and behaviors. This can be clearly illustrated by high-profile individuals who undertake unconventional practices, such as a one-time, briefly richest man turned back to first loser, Elon Musk. In 2018, Elon Musk and wife birthed a child who goes by the name of X-A-12. Uh, the spelling would make you think that this child was named after a graphics card. However, this is the name that they will have for the remainder of their life. I say this because Elon Musk is a parent who has hopped on the bandwagon that is riding the train straight into the advent of gender-neutral parenting. This is a development that approaches... What? From what I could find online, this idea boils down to having children raised in such a way that it's not restrictive on the way gender is expressed. Concepts such as switching out the term boy and girl in lieu for baby, allowing the child to dress how they want and potentially even hiding the gender of their child from people except those particularly close. Some of the effects that go on to impact children raised in these circumstances may go on to leave playtime relatively unaffected. And while people have argued that this could be a negative impact on the sexuality of the child, really a byproduct of rampant heteronormativity and some ideology revolving around disdain for having a child be part of the LGBTQ community is more likely here. This type of parenting has seemed to have a marginal, if any, effect on the sexuality of the child. 85% of children raised this way grow on to become heterosexual adults. One immediate side effect, however, particularly for younger children, could be if a boy chooses to wear a dress to go to school, 
Backlash and bullying are almost certain to occur, which could be harmful. Not justified, of course, but a real concern nonetheless for the well-being of the child. Not to mention an Elon Musk child's case. I'm hoping about by firmware update number 13, xash A12, has learned to uh, come with the roasts because they're going to be facing bullying on many fronts here. Some other benefits of this type of parenting could include increased creativity with a less restrictive idea on what is okay and what is not, just socially. Being more familiar with things on both sides of the spectrum, as far as gender roles and stereotypical things attuned to boys and girls from a young age, and a higher self-confidence stemming from greater personal choice and presentation and expression, as well as a better toleration and understanding of others and their behaviors and choices. Of my research, these are the most tangible aspects that I see working in the favor of this methodology of parenting, but conversely, the lack of structure and freeform in the context of gender while well-meaning, I feel like is analogous to trying to go for a Montessori-esque approach to parenting, but the execution comes off more as a misguided improvisation. The self-guided approach is a grand idea, but I think that in reality this kind of approach is an unnecessary redundancy for two reasons. One, society does not function this way, so if the goal is to foster an understanding for what can be considered traditional gender norms, there is nothing wrong with having that conversation with your child. In fact, I would argue that further pushing the idea that let my child decide whatever they want is kind of already in place. If your child tries Little League and hates it, most parents are not likely to continue to force the child to pursue the activity. They're in, if they do, there's a larger issue with the parent, not the child. The conversation should instead be focused on reaching the population of parents that are strict and forceful with their intentions in some cases, rather than trying to reinvent the wheel. The second point would be that it's perfectly acceptable and known for there to be mama's boys and daddy's little girl. Whether this manifests itself as the parent you're closest to or helping around the house and or activities that that parent attends to, you can clearly see a connection between activities and behaviors with the child and the opposite gender child. I think it's fair to say that while gender bending, the way you raise a child, sounds like a novel idea in theory, the greater issue you're trying to fix in society by doing this is definitely going to take a little bit more than a band-aid for this bullet hole. The last issue I have with this is similar practices lack the standardization and approach. This is kind of like just seeing what sticks, but everyone's kind of going freeform. I'm very skeptical that this kind of approach would work the way that there's no centralization of how you do it. Speaking of how you do it, this idea of how you do it mattering kind of leads us into our next topic. The way in which we do participation trophies. Another issue that brings us here is participation trophies. Participation trophies have been gaining traction since the 80s, and we can thank California for their introduction into society, with sources stating that the desire to have inner-city youth feeling more included was the catalyst for the practice. In addition, it's worth noting that not only well-meaning institutions like school systems or Little League see the value in such a thing. The same companies manufacturing these trophies are seeing a benefit on their bottom line in the form of commas. A trophy manufacturer said that their sales increased 500% since 
in the last 40 years, and that the trophy industry rakes in $2 billion annually in the US and Canada, putting earnings on par with weight loss services and online dating. I think we've all seen our fair share of participation trophies infiltrating competition across the states, but this is kind of along a similar vein to all of these new social practices to make people feel included and valued. While well-meaning, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. My first experience with this is in high school. I was competing in speech and debate. I did impromptu speaking. And coming from a small high school, there was oftentimes a problem where there was either a lack of competition in the more niche activities, or not enough competitors until later rounds. As such, on one particular occasion, there was only myself and this girl from another school competing for a conference, and it was decided by the judges that it would serve as a learning experience for this first round of competition for that year. No winners, no losers, until we moved on to later competitions. Now, for me, maybe it's the Y chromosome, or maybe it's just me being competitive, but I was jaded. I had absolutely no desire to neither be a winner nor a loser. I wanted to compete. That's why I was there. And while the learning experience was beneficial, I had prepared myself to come and, in the words of Ender from Ender's Game, I came to destroy, not win. I wanted to win all the battles. If you don't have that mentality going into a game, are you really playing? And it's no secret that not to brag, but being a state champ, I was going to decimate this girl. I didn't know it until we went into the first room for the first round of this learning experience, but it would have been a one-sided slaughter in my favor. This is an example of not necessarily letting people off the hook, but kind of the washing down of competition. You can see this in tournaments across America, whether it's an AAU little league or soccer tournaments where just for showing up, you get a trophy. Maybe it's just the, I don't know, a banner with the tournament's name on it. Everyone gets a little statue saying, I was there. Or maybe you can see it in a classroom where there's a competition for maybe a study game and everyone still gets pieces of candy regardless. That's not the way competition works. Winners win and losers lose. You go for the competition for the thrill of being first. That's what drives people to do better. It's the motivation that's competing. And we've seen this downfall in the past couple of years. It even kind of goes a little bit further into the point where, while well-meaning and for getting more representation, there is a case during an NBA dunk competition where clearly there is a discrepancy between what was the best dunk and what was impressive just because someone who wouldn't ordinarily participate participated and then won first place. These are small changes that have occurred in culture in America, but this kind of bleeds into what we see in the media as kind of society is a hive mind of what we value. Coming into representation and inclusivity, we can see the changes in the media that we consume. On June 13th of 2020, Nickelodeon tweeted uh, four pictures. It was a tweet that characterized Cora 
as bisexual Canadian transgender actor Michael D. Cohen, and then Spongebob of an unspecified identity. As a result, the speculation on Twitter and at large as to the sexual orientation of this sea creature were previously considered as asexual by creator Steven Hillenburg in 2005, was now brought to the forefront as... How does Spongebob really identify? Cora and Michael are organic examples. Cora is an example of bringing up a more minority population into the forefront in a very organic way that makes sense. For anyone who has not seen the show, Cora is the protagonist of a follow-up from Avatar The Last Airbender. And throughout the show, you get to see the trials and tribulations of our characters they go to try to save the world from various villains, but you also get to see the relationships that she builds with Team Korra or Team Avatar. And it really comes to a point where the payoff at the very end of the show, it is implied very heavily that Korra and Asami, another member of the team, will end up together as they go to travel the world. The way that this relationship came up was shown and dripped throughout the show with little hints that things actually make sense. This is something you see in real life, that's something that's growing, not just thrown together. Kind of like how Spongebob was just kind of put there. While you could assume that Spongebob and Patrick could be an item, it's always been implied that they're just best friends. There's even an alternate timeline where Spongebob marries Sandy. So kind of throwing this in there kind of late this is kind of where pink capitalism comes into play here and it's honestly a little bit more negative on the representation of the lgbtq plus community than it would be otherwise however nickelodeon was not the first to do it in 2018 september 18th bert and ernie came out as gay a time article read so in this instance Another retroactive shot at trying to showcase representation that while well-meaning as this claim may be by the show writer, it was in direct opposition from the creator's workshop interpretation of them just being puppets who are best friends. In a direct quote, I always felt that without a huge agenda, when I was writing Bert and Ernie, they were gay. Saltzman said, continuing, that this was the way he contextualized the characters, without revealing this until an interview earlier in the week being in September. While he may have felt this way and he's completely valid, as the writer, I could imagine that this is something that he kept in mind as he was writing the show. Why would you wait all these years to drop this bombshell on the entire community? And more so, I honestly wasn't even aware and never thought that puppets had sexual orientations, be it heterosexual or otherwise this was just another instance where it felt like they were kind of shotgunning some kind of representation in there i want to counterpoint these where saying in a different instance with the introduction of black panther into the mcu it was a huge deal there is all kinds of speculation about how this movie would go how they would produce it featuring a mainstream black superhero character in the MCU being the largest franchise we had seen in recent history. The way that they went about it was having a majority black cast seeing as the movie was shot quote unquote 
<laughs> in uh, a black country, albeit fictional. So this made sense, but they also brought in a lot of African Americans to help with the making of the movie. And it was really something special because it was something that Hollywood had never really seen in what would be a triple A rated blockbuster movie with this kind of budget. This was something that was done not only for the representation, but it made sense why they did it, as opposed to kind of just shooting out a tweet into the void here and saying, well, this is this because I said so. It just feels like you're hopping on the bandwagon and honestly a little bit snarky if not malicious towards the whole cause here, but maybe it's just me. All of these things kind of culminate into what society is now. A society that has issues bridging differences to have an honest conversation. There's a distinction between being an asshole and being a reasonably good person. This introduced language, while seemingly helpful, is actually further the divide in people relating to one another by needing to be a scholar in woke culture to be truly ed educated or being a decent human being. It's not even that the concepts are too overbearing to me, I just believe it to be the pro-generators handling the unloading of this information to people is at the core the real discrepancy for people. Conservatives are more often than not the ones being slammed for inappropriate language, which in more than one case is justified. However, even in minor instances, they're later crucified on liberal news outlets further polarizing people who watch them to beget demonizing. And likewise, on the opposite side, for the same instance, crying foul and achieving the same effect on people who consume conservative media outlets. In everyday conversations and correspondence, there's a new stutter to communication to ensure that there are no mistakes in nomenclature, which is good. But this has also introduced a fear into individuals from speaking on many topics out of fear of being canceled or instigating an argument over a non-aggressive position. Everyone is entitled to their opinion and follows a unique Frankensteinian school of thought that generally shares a similar foundation, and yet the nuances are the largest piece to determine. In a political climate at the bare bones, whether a KKK member, senator, or burger flipper, you ultimately want what is best for the country and want to see America succeed. The issue arises in your steps to achieve this goal. Obviously, the Founding Fathers have seen to it that Machiavellian methods are outlawed, and thus, the birth of free speech and thought were drafted onto what must have been the most important napkin in history that later went on to become our Constitution. Feelings of all kind are valid, but not always correct. In having genuine discourse, without being offended, learning can occur, and prosperity may actually happen. The unforgiving undertones of political correctness in, for lack of a better term, mass snowflake education have eaten away at the best tool we have for coming together, discourse. All these concepts, while seemingly cherry-picked for this recording, are just some of the starkest examples of underlying issues embedded in the code of political correctness in my estimation. That isn't to say I've not benefited, or it isn't a noble effort, or anything to the effect of it being useless, it's just... There's more going on here than hashtags trending with some of these changes. In this pandemic that began last March, wearing a mask was met with some resistance by many, apathy by more, and diligence by some. Some people wore it just to avoid problems and continue to do so. However, on my side of the grass, 
Winter doesn't begin until the later part of the calendar year. Even before becoming another statistic for John Hopkins last September and receiving my first shot of the vaccine beginning in 2021, I realized the importance of mask wearing and the real effect it has on many families, communities, businesses, and individuals. Doesn't mean I like to wear it though. How bizarre is it to me breathing unfiltered air, raising my anxiety whenever I leave my humble abode, when most of my life nothing felt better than the satisfaction of inhaling crisp, gaseous cocktails every three seconds to satiate my needy lungs. However, in these winter months, I've found the task of wearing a mask quite welcome to shield from the cold, a concept I had never even considered on my way to the car taking a stroll outside four months out of the year. Moreover, when someone is wilding, I can just hide my laugh behind the mask without detection. I can simply not smile in situations with no repercussions socially to keep up appearances, and I can stall as long as necessary to finish my interaction to blow my nose. These are a few unintended side effects of something that we as a collective have done in the efforts to further the common good. I see political correctness as analogous to this experience with one key difference. A lot of the unintended side effects are negatives, not positives. And many of these side effects I think often go unconsidered by the masses. So while well-meaning, I just think we need to be a little bit more careful about the way that we approach some of these solutions with changing American culture for the better socially, and a lot of the introduction of concepts that are either under the guise of political correctness or accurate terminology. This concludes this episode of Thoughts Into the Void. Thank you for listening.